Hi, this is Dr. Emily Kulpa, and today we'll be mapping psilocybin on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be talking with Dr. Emily Kulpa. Dr. Emily Kulpa is a clinical pharmacist and a psychedelic medicine consultant with a background in medication therapy management. She provides harm reduction education and antidepressant tapering strategies to her clients. Dr. Kulpa has experience working as the director of screening at Synthesis, a legal psilocybin retreat center in the Netherlands. She is the co-founder of the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association, a nonprofit organization dedicated to pharmacists advancing psychedelics as medicines. She earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Concordia University, Wisconsin, and her Bachelor's of Science in Biology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Kulpa, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. It's about time, actually, to talk to you, but also to talk about this topic. We're talking about psilocybin today, and there's actually so much to explore on this topic. We will focus our attention more on the medical and clinical uses today, but I'm wondering if you could just start us out by articulating what psilocybin is. Yes. So psilocybin is actually the active compound in the psilocybin mushroom, which is also known as magic mushrooms. And psilocybin, it actually gets converted into psilocin, which affects serotonin and has a high affinity for the 5-HT2A receptor. Interesting. I was going to ask you about that in particular when we get into the physiology as well. And do I have it right that it comes from the fruiting body of the mushroom? Yes, it comes from the fruiting body of the mushroom. And then when we're thinking about it in terms of clinical usage, where is the most research arising? What are we looking at? I'm assuming it's related to mental health because of those receptors, those serotonin receptors. Definitely. And it's actually being studied across a variety of different treatments. So there was a lot of research back in the 50s, 60s. And now in the last decade, there has been a lot more research. And so right now, psilocybin-assisted therapy is an approach being researched for the treatment of mental health conditions. So you're actually combining the use of psilocybin and therapy. And so right now, all of the early studies conducted at academic centers across the world have shown that psilocybin could be a safe and effective medicine for patients with depression, 
anxiety, addiction, and other mental illnesses. A newer research is actually showing it could be a catalyst for behavioral and lifestyle changes. And it's also being studied to treat Alzheimer's and traumatic brain injury because it also has neuroplastic effects. So fascinating. I'm wondering if we could take one of those mental health conditions and kind of look at it a little bit more deeply, how it's showing to have some effects. And I know PTSD is often brought up in relation to psilocybin work as well. Is that right? PTSD, right now, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, MAPS is doing a lot of research on treating PTSD. So psilocybin, I would say, is more focused on treating depression and end-of-life anxiety. I'd say depression is the big one with psilocybin. Good to know. So can we talk a little bit about those mechanisms in relation to depression and potentially talk about like dosing? Because I know there can be discussions about micro versus macro. So let's look at depression through the lens of psilocybin care. Is that the right term? Psilocybin care? Psilocybin (laughs) assisted care? Yes, psilocybin assisted therapy. So like I mentioned before, what they've shown in the research is that it works on the serotonin system, and it has very high affinity for the 5-HT2A receptor. And on top of that, some of the other mechanisms that they've looked at in the research is that you get an increased activity and connection in certain areas of the brain. So you're actually increasing connectivity within the brain, increasing activity in parts of the brain like the visual cortex. And then you're getting decreased activity. This is, you know, when the psilocybin is being administered in other areas. So the default mold network, psilocybin decreases activity in that area of the brain. And that is the state of our brain at rest when we're not actively engaged in activity. And some of the research has shown that people who have depression and anxiety, this part of the brain can be overactive. So it's decreasing activity in that area. And it also has neuroplastic effects. So with neuroplasticity, you're able to make new connections and form new pathways in the brain. And so if we're looking at, you know, depression, I'd say psilocybin allows for more active coping, right? Um, Actually getting to the root cause of depression and anxiety. So with SSRIs, that's more focused on the chemical imbalance theory, right? Which I believe is a bit undersimplified. And so with psilocybin, you're actually able to get to the root cause of depression and anxiety, allowing people to heal from past traumas and wounds because anxiety and depression is multiple etiologies and why we can have those conditions. And with this neuroplasticity and connecting different parts of the brain, people can actually change their behaviors and emotional responses is during the inexperience, your unconscious is able to speak with the conscious. And this can be very healing and helpful in resolving unhealthy patterns, which have been shown to be part of the root problem of why people have anxiety and depression. It's really fascinating. And when we're talking about these therapies, is it with some kind of consistency, repeat usage? Does that depend on the dosing? Yeah, so it is quite fascinating. We're still researching a lot of that as far as how many sessions does somebody need. So I think right now in the research studies, people will either have a single session or they'll have two 
psilocybin sessions. And let's just talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, about what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you that next. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. So there are a couple of components when it comes to psilocybin-assisted therapy. The first one is screening, right? So screening is very important. You want to make sure the patient is a good candidate, that they don't have any physical or mental health contraindications that there's no medication interactions, and that the person is in the right mental state to have the session because you are going into altered states of consciousness. Then you have the preparation part. So that's before the psilocybin session, and you're really building trust between the therapist and the patient or between the patient and whoever's going to be facilitating the session, which could be a therapist or somebody else. And you're going to educate them about what an experience could be like, things that they can expect, and tips on how to navigate altered states of consciousness. So that's really important. And then you have the actual session. The setting is very important. So you want it to be a very safe, calming, inviting atmosphere and environment. The patients are most likely laying down. And during the experience, they're wearing some kind of eye shade or a mask. They'll be listening to specially designed music playlists. And this is all to help them focus on the internal experience. And then the sessions will last about six to eight hours. And there's always a therapist or some kind of facilitator that's present with them throughout the entire journey. And so people who guide the sessions are people who have you know, pretty good human relations skills and they're experienced with altered states of consciousness or therapists who have gone through specialized training. So I want to go back to those contraindications so that we're all aware. You mentioned that there are some that are physical or physiological. There are some that are pharmaceutical. What would those be that we would be considering? Yeah, so some of the contraindications right now in the research, it depends on your mental health history. So if you have active schizophrenia, active bipolar, or family history of schizophrenia, psychosis, or bipolar Those are all currently contraindications to psilocybin therapy. And then certain physical health conditions. So psilocybin also works on the cardiovascular system. So it transiently increases blood pressure and heart rate during the session. So, you know, you really want to make sure people don't have severe cardiac history. And psilocybin can also decrease seizure thresholds. So right now, you know, it's contraindicated in people who have a history of seizures or epilepsy in the research. And then as far as medications go, you want to look out for, you know, medications that work on the serotonin system. And then, you know, a lot of antidepressants and antipsychotics we feel can actually blunt the effects of psilocybin. So there are certain medications that could decrease the efficacy and that's going to interfere with like your processing of the whole experience and the efficacy. Are you finding that there's a time period if somebody was on one of those SSRIs that they have to be off of it in order to experience the benefits? Yes. And it all depends person to person. So first, you know, I think right now the standard is to have people taper off of the antidepressants, of course, very slowly. And at least in the research, you know, we want them to be off for about like five times the half-life, right, is when the antidepressant is out of their system. However, for some people, like anecdotally, if you look at some of the retreats, and this is outside of the research setting, even two weeks might not be enough for them to have the full benefits of the psilocybin experience. 
So I think we're still kind of looking into what is an appropriate, I guess, like washout period. Yeah, because you mentioned how personal that might be, and that might really depend on what the literature says the half-life is, and then what that person's own physiology and biochemistry (laughs) says the half-life is, right? Definitely, Yeah, it gets confusing there. So you mentioned that there was some research back in the 50s. I'm wondering if we could look at when this began, and I, I realize that's hard because the Mayan other peoples have been using this fruiting body of the mushroom for a long time, spiritually and medicinally. But what are the roots of the research that led us to where we are today? Yeah, I guess as far as the roots, I think back in the 50s and 60s, they were kind of exploring with, you know, they stumbled across LSD and psilocybin and decided to use it in some of their mental health patients and found that they were getting pretty good results with it, even though it wasn't probably as methodical, you know, as we do today in our research studies, but they were finding benefits in a lot of their mental health patients back then. And that's kind of the basis for the research that we were building on today. So I have two final questions for you, Dr. Culpa. One is, what do you hear most from people, from other providers or researchers or clinicians that they are fearful about when they learn about your work? Yeah, so there is a lot of stigma. So let me just touch on safety. I think that's a big one. So if you look at the data overall, psilocybin, it's generally well-tolerated in healthy individuals. It has minimal adverse effects, things like mild headache, anxiety, nausea, has a very low potential for abuse. And this is compared to substances like alcohol, nicotine, and caffeine. Of course, it's not without risk, but these can be minimized, as we've seen in the research, by following harm reduction guidelines that include proper screening, the right set and setting, integration and support. So that's another thing I didn't mention, but the integration component. And that's after the journey. And that's when patients are encouraged to discuss their experiences during the session and to generate their own insights and ideas. So there's sort of like four stages, like you mentioned. Yeah. Can you just list those again? Yeah. So it's screening, the preparation, you have the actual experience. So that's the set and setting and then the integration piece. Okay. Great. So a lot of stigma, like you said, and the stigma is around safety issues and I'm assuming just fears of, you know, our thoughts about the quote unquote magic mushroom for people who haven't had any type of experience. What are you feeling most excited about in the research and in the clinical applications? What are you seeing and feeling jazzed about? I'm really jazzed about Measure 109 in Oregon that just passed. And that's because we're going to be the first state to legalize psilocybin therapy. Right now, they're in their two-year period of coming up with all the rules and regulations to hopefully offer this type of treatment to people in 2023. I just believe psilocybin-assisted therapy has a huge potential to cultivate healing and treatment and treating mental health conditions. And there are two companies that got FDA breakthrough therapy designation. One is USONA nonprofit. One is Compass Pathways. That's a for-profit. So they are trying to bring psilocybin down the pharmaceutical route. So that's 
you know, coming down the pipeline, but might not be approved for another three to four years or so. And so Oregon is going to be one of the first states to allow this therapy legal in 2023. And I have just seen so many people who are just desperate, who, who are really looking for true healing, and they haven't been able to find that with traditional pharmaceutical medicines. So I'm really pumped about trying to get this out so we can help people soon and help a lot of people. Thank you so much, Dr. Kolpa, for really shining a light on this topic and the research behind it. And we will link to lots of things in the show notes for those who want to explore more, including your website. And again, thank you. And I'm proud to be an Oregonian alongside you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andrea, for having me on. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 